From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Lovely day to speak to you on the internet. Indeed. Max, what do you have for us this week on the show? I talked to E. Alex Jung, who is a writer for Vulture and New York Magazine. You guys have read his stuff. He writes profiles, does interviews of mostly famous people. And his work has this um, distinct quality, which is that it's interesting and honest. And he has written some profiles, published some interviews in the pandemic that I was really intrigued by because not only did they get very widely read, but the conversations themselves got to this really intimate, revealing place. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've been doing a bunch of interviews over Zoom for the last year and a half. My experience is it's not easy, that it's hard to have that kind of conversation over the internet. And so Alex came in, we talked in person uh, about how he does that. You've piqued my interest. I don't know if our listeners are, are fully aware that we did this show pretty much exclusively in person for six plus years and now have been doing it over the internet and it's harder and sometimes less good. I hate it. I don't, yeah. We're all extremely sick of it. The timing is weird. It's awkward. So I envy you, Max, uh, getting to do a couple in person. I still have not returned to the in-person studio. Evan, have, have you returned to the in-person well, studio? Well, I, I interviewed you in person. I don't know if you remember. Oh, that's right. Long form that's podcast. right. I guess I have. That one reached some intimate depths. <laughs> yeah. That one was the double intimate sitting in two chairs facing each other with no table between. <laughs> Our show is um, produced in partnership with Vox Media. That's a new thing. And it's great. And we thank them for the support. And now here's Max with E. Alex Jones. All right. Well, this is a strange way to start our conversation okay. because normally when people come on, I'm like, hello. And then I say their name. I don't actually know whether you go by Alex or E. Alex uh-huh. or a name that starts with E that I don't know the full Oh, that would be of. funny, right? Yeah. It's like, my actually, I go by Evander. Ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> What's the deal with your byline? I go by Alex. My my government name is Eugene. Ah. Yeah, big secret. Uh, please don't hack me. <laughs> and I guess I, I felt weird about ignoring it, but it felt unrealistic to go by it because everybody calls me Alex. Yeah. So that's why it became E. Alex Jung. And then once that started, I didn't feel like I should change it because who cares? But you did change it at some point after you started writing, right? Oh, I guess maybe I did. I might have been inconsistent. I know for a fact that you did. Wow. Because we posted an essay on long form that you wrote on um, drop crotch pants. It was in the morning news. And I was searching my email like the other day to find like our thread to figure out a time to do this. And I have this email from you being like, 
hey, can you change the byline on that morning news piece? Because I I sort of have a new name now. And that's why I was unsure what to call you. That's, uh, wow, call me out. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't you, think that's calling no, no, you no, out. No, 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 but you, you literally have receipts, which is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm having this, like, this awareness that that totally happened. But I'm trying to remember why I... There must have been a consistency issue where I felt like it should have been smooth. I think I was hoping that there had been some moment where you were like, I'm going to embrace Eugene. <laughs> it's time to let Eugene out in the world. You know what? Maybe uh, maybe I'll do that as like a second renaissance. You know, <laughs> yeah. once, once I fall into my flop era, I'll like rebrand as Eugene. I have more origin story questions for you. Uh-huh. My understanding is that you started in New York Magazine as an intern. I did. Maybe not at the like age that people assume interns normally are correct uh you were 28 i yeah i think i would have been around 27 28 what were you doing before then and uh how'd you get that internship well before that i immediately before that i was in grad school at nyu but i guess before that i was doing a fulbright in korea in seoul i was doing a research fulbright about queer neighborhoods in Korea and I was interested in like a anthropological look at these two neighborhoods gay male neighborhoods and I was flirting with this idea of going into academia but then I wrote this article about drop crotch pants I was fascinated with it at the time I still actually love them I still have them um, so it's not like this <laughs> I reread fad. it before we talked you made them sound so comfortable <laughs> they are really comfortable <laughs> um, yeah and, and I saw them in Korea and I was kind of scared by them but fascinated and yeah. I was like at the time you know this was when the morning news the rumpus there were these wonderful long form essays that I loved reading and I was like what if I wrote about something that I just truly sort of gave me joy in this way and so I started just writing or researching this piece that was very long and it was my first real like go at trying to write something like that you know I loved Jay Caspian King's gambling essay and so, you know, I, I'm doing my, like, impression of these writers that I really liked reading, only about clothes and fashion. And it sort of sent me down this, like, hole of fashion sociology and history and gender theory and all of these things that I, I always found interesting. And I was living in Korea at the time, after the Fulbright, and, you know, living for, like, $100 a month for rent, you yeah. know, in a friend's place. Uh, and I was working at an SAT hog one, so I didn't have expenses, right? I didn't have to write for money, essentially, because I remember I got paid $50 for that. <laughs> Truly a labor of, of love in the deepest sense, I think. I think that was probably one of the first times I had ever written something just because I really wanted to do it, right. you know? One of those ones where you like, you try not to calculate your hourly rate on it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, what would that be? It, it definitely took me like probably a solid four or five months, you know? So it's, let's... We're talking pennies, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I published that piece. I was super proud. And then, you know, I have to say, like, I didn't think anyone really read it, but at least two people read it, which was someone at Longform. <laughs> and then Jane Kim, who's now the culture editor at The Atlantic, but at the time she was working at the Asian American Writers Workshop. And she reached out to me and was like, oh, I really love this essay. Longform posted it. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. Yeah. Maybe this is like a thing I can really do. And was academia appealing at the time or was it just like the next thing to do? I think there's that feeling of, I don't know exactly what I want to do, 
so I could just do academia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like there, there are things that I find interesting enough that I could potentially do, you know, like study rhetoric or something. <laughs> but that gave me the sort of like wind in my sails to mm. say, you know what, the thing I actually really would love to do is do this kind of writing. And so that's sort of when I applied to journalism school. Uh, I think I just didn't know how to do it. Like I didn't really know how you got a job to actually making money doing those things, right? Like not getting paid just $50 a piece for that because mm-hmm. that's totally unsustainable. So I think that's why I applied, you know? And then I, I got into NYU and I was doing like digital media journalism because I thought I should learn a skill. <laughs> right, a trade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a craftsman, you know? <laughs> um, so I was like, you know, learning how to shoot and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I like the flexibility of the program because it allowed me to take anthro classes. I could take essay you know I could take classes in all these other departments and of course the truth was I just really wanted to just be a writer I wanted to write about cultural politics I wanted to do cultural reporting and criticism that's what I wanted can I ask you a money question sure yeah how'd you pay for school I got a scholarship oh nice yeah so I got into Columbia and NYU because I knew I wanted to go to New York or go back to New York and Columbia gave me pennies and NYU gave me a lot more money so that's why I went there so you graduate NYU, you've got your uh, craftsman trades now, mm-hmm. and then get this internship at New York Magazine? Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to this. Like, how do you work your way up in that place? And and when was that? How long ago was that? It's almost eight years to the month now, actually. Uh, Hell of an eight years. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I remember because my password was the date I started, so I always remember the date I started. <laughs> I hope you've changed that now. Yes, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was an intern. I was an old intern. I felt really insecure about that. But I did feel like I had something that maybe the younger people didn't have, which was I had, like, done my walkabout. Mm-hmm. You know, I left the country. I lived in Korea for a while. It wasn't just a Fulbright. I sort of was in and out. And I kind of, like, worked through a lot of existential and emotional angst. I kind of, like, knew what I liked and I knew what I wanted to do. And I think that sense of clarity kind of helped a lot. You weren't, like, using the internship to answer the big questions. Right. I was going to be, I'm old and I'm going to make this work. <laughs> <laughs> What was the work that you wanted to be doing then and how does that line up with the work that you find yourself doing now? I guess I just sort of see what I'm doing now as a it's it's a more fully realized form of the thing that I was interested in at the time. And the reason why I wanted to work at Vulture was because I loved the writing. I loved how funny it was. I liked how conversational it felt. I liked that it, they could be subversive or punchy and sort of knew when to do that. But I think that what they lacked was any sense of something outside of white culture. Whereas I think living in Korea, I sort of understood that America or white people were not the center of the world in that way. I lived in a totally different context in a different country in which the paradigm was different. And I think that helped ground me in knowing that just because someone else isn't interested in this or doesn't think that this is interesting doesn't mean that it's not interesting. It's enough for me to think it's interesting. And I think that part of sort of the incremental journey at New York Magazine was about getting other people to realize that the thing I thought was interesting was valid and perhaps good for traffic. How Um, do you do that? You got to get some winners on the board. (laughs) Plain and simple, you know, like traffic speaks volumes, I think. Like at the time I, 
I was blogging. But of course, the thing that I wanted to do was longer features, profiles, things like that. And so I started, my first celebrity interviews were through party reporting, which is hell. And I don't <laughs> recommend it to anybody. Can you give the very short version sure. of what party reporting is? Oh, sure. You go to red carpets where you get 30 seconds with someone and you have to get some usable quote. Or even worse, you are at the after party where they're all having fun and you come up to them with your tape recorder and you're like, hi, Edward Norton, can you answer a question for me? <laughs> and you are just the most pathetic human being alive. Are you... They don't like you. Because <laughs> they're like, I'm partying with my friends. I don't want to talk to you. Are you by nature like a extroverted person? Like, does that dynamic appeal to you? or Because is... to no. me, that sounds like, for some significant portion of humanity, a nightmare. Oh, it's hell. Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying. It, you just feel bad, right? You feel bad that you're like in this situation. <laughs> you feel bad for the person too, because I'm like, yeah, I don't want to talk to me either here, <laughs> right? Like, I just want to get drunk and have fun. Right. You know, celebrate my friend's movie. But you found a way to do it. I did. I sort of was kind of good at it, I think. What made you good at it? I don't know. I think I just like, I think I understood what the Vulture Post was, which was something kind of like off kilter and funny. You know, I remember I talked to Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman about farting on stage. And they were like kind and gracious in that way to riff, right? So it was like a perfect kind of vulture post where you're like, yeah. you know, these two like iconic actors are talking about farting on right. stage, passing gas, right? And so it was a good muscle for me to exercise to just ask the question and mm -hmm. to sort of get over your fears or your idea of what the situation is and just do it. And so that sort of allowed me to start doing junkets, which is a slightly more evolved form of party reporting, right? <laughs> Only you're at a hotel. It's like, it's like the party comes to you a little bit. A little bit. You go to the hotel, the talent's in the room, publicists are there, and you get 15 minutes and you get sort of wheeled in and out, mm -hmm. right? And so that's sort of where I started doing that. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Let's go back to the scoreboard. Sure. I was asking, how do you start to convince, I think we're talking about editors here, yeah, mostly, that the things that you're interested in, even if they are not interested in, there are other people who are interested in them too. And your answer to that was like, basically, the stats. Yeah. 
are there examples that you can think of? Are there moments where you were like, yeah, I'm going to do this anyway and we'll see whether or not it works. Right. Well, so I was very lucky because around the time I started, Gazelle Amami also started and she was the TV editor at the time at Vulture. Now she's the culture features director at New York Magazine. So our careers have kind of like moved along these parallel tracks in this interesting way, but we got along very well. And so she kind of gave me the latitude to, if I could get someone, to just go do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think by 2016, I had been doing this for a little while. And, you know, I did a bunch of interviews, like long interviews with people like uh, Noah Galvin, Constance Wu, RuPaul, John Cho. That RuPaul one was like, you cannot look at the internet without seeing someone talking about that RuPaul interview. Like, I feel like I've now seen you do that many times. Uh But I think that the RuPaul one, it's at least the first one that I remember where it's just like, it just owned Twitter for whatever a day or two days. The RuPaul one is a big is a big turning point, I think, in some ways, because these are, you know, shop talk conversations. But like, you know, Vulture was like exploring Vulture cover stories at the time. Yeah, yeah, right? sure. I feel like every magazine did that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, we'll just, there's so much equity and value in the cover. Right. That we're just going to bang our fucking heads against the wall trying to figure out how to recreate that digitally. <laughs> we're just going to call it a cover, but it's just the same thing. <laughs> just the same. It's the same exact thing. <laughs> Lipstick on a pig. Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> so there was this conversation around what was going to be the Vulture cover story. And, you know, Gazelle was like, it should be the RuPaul story. And I obviously thought that too. Um, so you'd already done the interview. Yes, I had done the interview and we were going to put it up. And they decided to go with something else. I honestly cannot remember what it was. Ed Norton. <laughs> 30 seconds with Ed Norton. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the RuPaul interview went up. And it did very well. Um, It was one of the most read stories of the year. And, you know, one of the editorial directors of the site slacked me and he was like, oh, I'm so surprised at how well this did. And I was so snotty. I replied, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we had a relationship where I felt like I could be, I don't know, he's like, a little caustic. And I sort of enjoyed that. And I think we had a kind of punchy relationship. Mm -hmm. So I felt within my rights to sort of say something like that. But I was a little, I was a little bit like annoyed, but I also felt good that I, I was right. Did it feel in that moment like being right was going to allow you to do more of what you want to be doing? That was the hope that like this would give me the latitude to just do what I wanted to do. And is that basically how it goes for you now? I mean, that that was a, one of the questions that I had was like, how much of this is assigned versus you are reaching out to people versus like, I imagine you are getting pitched 1000 times a day. Sure. What's the breakdown between those things? For uh, you? It's like 80, 20, like I pitch versus assignments, maybe 90, 10. I'm, I'm very pitch heavy. It's usually the thing I want to do. And how often do you accept inbound pitches? From publicists? Yeah. Occasionally. Yeah. It depends on if I feel like the timing is right and also if they'll give me the access. It's a combination of things. When you say the timing is right, what does that exactly mean? I guess it's like a feeling of like, now's the right time to do this person. You know, I mean, I just read, I don't know, 25 things of yours over the last like couple of days, which is an interesting experience. No, it's interesting to just read the last like several years of someone's work, like back to back to back to back. And one thing that's hard to piece together in retrospect is like how much of this is like, 
following the zeitgeist and how much of this is trying to like set the zeitgeist? I think there's a combination of both, right? I, I did a profile of Bong Joon-ho, the Korean director who did Parasite. I did that piece in, I think it published in October. Yeah, it was like the very beginning of the Oscar campaign. Like totally. He was just starting to do that work. Totally. You know, because the reporting happened during the summer. The decision happened in the spring, right? So to me, when I'm making that decision in the spring, I'm not thinking there was no way to anticipate that that movie was going to win an Oscar, like Best Picture. Right. You know, so that wasn't part of my mindset. My mindset was just, oh, I love this director. Yeah. Like, he's awesome. I love the host, right? The host is a great monster movie. And here's an opportunity to finally do, like, a big U.S. profile of him that's never been done. And so that, to me, was the opportunity, right? Like, that was the excitement. That was the joy of doing that, was getting to to write about a director's work in a way that I felt like hadn't been done yet. Using that article as an example, actually, it's so clear in the writing of it, both that you're having a really good time hanging out with him, that you, like like him as a person I a do. lot. He's a good hang. He's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. And that you love his work. And I think that's there in a lot of the stuff that you write. Does that feel fair to you? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's not always the case. <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't say it's 100%, but it feels often to me. Yeah. You're, you're a very astute reader. Um, Yeah. I start from a place of usually liking the work for me to sort of devote the amount of time and energy that goes into a piece like this, there needs to be something that they do that I think is good Mm -hmm. and that I think is interesting that's worth going into or exploring. How does that fit to you in the sort of like genre of celebrity profiling? Does that seem like the norm or rare to you? No, I think I think that is the norm, you know, and that's the concern, right? Like I don't want to be just doing a, better version of fangirling essentially and I think that's why maybe there needs to be something like that I find intellectually interesting or stimulating about the work Mm -hmm. that sort of will give me a grip into the thing that I can write about in a way that isn't just pure oh this is a, a thing that I love but can sort of go into the mechanics either formally or thematically or whatever that I think are interesting that I can kind of write about. But, you know, I think a lot of celebrity profiles are bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> They're not good. And I I don't think that I write great ones all the time either. So, you know, like I put myself in this category too. But like, I think it's it's tricky when you feel like the profile as a form, you know, I think generally lends itself to a kind of positive light mm-hmm. you know I, I you, you start to feel like a portrait artist during the medici era or something <laughs> yeah. you know or you're like conscripted by a rich family to like do a painting <laughs> <laughs> so that that exists you know like I, I feel very aware of those dynamics but i want to go back to something you were just saying which is like some of yours are not great uh-huh what do you mean by that what are the ones that don't work as well for you like what's a piece that's not as successful why uh I mean, I guess I just inevitably feel some level of disappointment after every piece of feeling like I could have done a better or more fully realized version of the thing that I wanted to do. And, you know, I guess maybe that's a good thing because I feel like there's something else to do. In basically all of the big interviews that you have done, you're going for it. And that is fucking hard 
with famous people who have a lot of publicists around them. Sure. On some level is the thing when you're like, that one wasn't as good as it could have been. You just couldn't quite crack them in that way or get them to open up in that way. Sometimes, uh, or sometimes it's just purely a writing craft thing. Uh, yeah. You know, back to the craftsmanship. <laughs> um, you know, like I wanted it to be more full, you know, and it I just didn't have the time or I didn't, uh, whatever, right? There's always excuses for that. And I think I, I sort of come down to myself a little bit. Yeah, so you're, yeah. You're, you're like being hard on yourself, not on like the uh, material you had to work with necessarily. I think I'm pretty... I think I'm pretty good at interviews. I think if, if I can feel like a confident about one area of of the process it takes to do a profile, I feel most confident about the interview. Well, let's talk about interviewing for a little bit. Can we sure. do that? Yeah. You have done all of these interviews in the pandemic that have been fantastic and sensational and, and really resonated for people. So what's interviewing on Zoom been like for you? How do you approach that? Honestly, I don't find it that different. Really? Yeah. I I so I like talking. Like I, I like the conversational part of things. I, I think my sort of flaws as a profiler would be not being great at scenes, not being great at like the in the moment kind of thing. That's a thing that I would like to be better at and like work on. But I think the thing that I do feel confident in is the talking. And Zoom is that's talking. That's <laughs> straight talking. <laughs> well, there's something kind of nice about it, right? Which is like it does kind of do away with some of those sort of silly celebrity profile totally. tropes of like he ordered the burger totally totally you're really stripping things away right like i think the two pieces that really exemplify the zoom interview pandemic moment were the michaela profile that i did michaela cole and tandy newton and they were both just over zoom but they were both people that i connected with emotionally very quickly like from the first conversation we were just in it and it was almost something about the Zoom that you felt this sort of closed boxed intimacy of mm-hmm. like, you know, we're just talking about it and it's just the two of us and it's like therapy. And yeah, it was very raw and very emotional, you know, and I think like everyone was feeling very emotional at the time too. And something about just having those conversations, it sort of tapped into that as opposed to shy away from it. Michaela, you talked to for like weeks on end right? yeah I, I feel like we talked for like seven or eight weeks or something that actually is like therapy yeah <laughs> like meeting every week to yeah. talk yeah yeah did you know quickly that you were going to get to that place like could you feel that there was an openness from the start or is that something that you work on so I had met her before in person when she was promoting Black Earth Rising this Netflix show and she was in New York doing press so I had I had met her then and I you know, she's incredibly ebullient, I think is like the best word to put it, and like very open. And so I think when we were talking on Zoom, we were just very in the same step of what this would be in some ways. And we were kind of, it felt like we were both trying to figure out her work together and her process together, which is a really interesting dynamic to have with someone. But I think that ended up getting reflected in the writing too, because. I think the piece is essentially about writing and yeah. that's what I wanted it to be. And I wanted the feeling that you have when you finish the piece to be the feeling she had when she finished the show, which is also the feeling you have when you watch the show. I think that's sort of what my ambition was. You know, I don't know if it quite lands, of course, but 
like she was game for the process, right? She gave me her number after that first conversation. So then we could just continue the conversation as opposed to go through a publicist who would inevitably mediate or limit the amount of time that we would get. Do you have a sense that someone will be game and that's part of why you want to talk to them? Or do you just like light up when it starts and you're like, oh, this person's game. Amazing. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I I think that's hard to predict. You know, I, I went to New Orleans to see Jennifer Coolidge at her house. The publicist arranged a couple hours at her house and it just became a three day hangout. But I didn't know that to begin with. There hadn't really been long profiles written of her, so I didn't really have a good sense of what she was like in person. But then meeting her in person, I was like, oh, she's down to clown. <laughs> Let's go, you know. <laughs> and when you go into an interview like that or, or with Michaela, like, do you have somewhere clear that you want to go? How planned out are you? How diagrammed is that conversation? How much are you following a list of questions or beats you want to hit? And how much are you just like reacting to what they're saying. I think it's like structured improv or something, <laughs> you know? Like you, there are story beats that you know you want to hit. Sounds right? like a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Like there are things that you want to get at. There are points in their career or things that you think might be interesting to talk about. And you definitely want to talk about those things, but you also want to be open to the process and open to whatever they want to talk about or do or be. And so I think both need to exist, right? Like I do a lot of prep for the interviews beforehand. So I have a pretty good sense of everything in the back of my mind. And then you let it fly when it's time to go. That letting it fly thing, is that something you can get better at? I don't know. I don't know. Do you, do you think you can get better at it? Yeah. Yeah? How? Yeah. I think it's mostly reps. I think just doing it more allows you to feel more comfortable and a little bit more trust that like the plane will land uh -huh. you know I mean you're in a slightly different situation which is like you're gonna get a whole bunch of stuff and then go back and piece it together right but yeah I think you can get more comfortable in not knowing exactly where things are going right but it also might just be that like your wiring is such that like whether it's three hours or three days, you can talk to Jennifer Coolidge. Like, you're not going to run out of questions. Yeah, no. I mean, there's things to do. There's people to see. <laughs> Delicious things to eat, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you just get more comfortable with yourself in that space. And I guess my feeling is like, if you don't want to do this anymore, we don't have to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. But as long as you're, you're sort of game to do it, then I, I feel very willing and open to anything that's that's kind of how I feel is when I'm in that space I try to be a sponge who's just like I'll just absorb whatever's happening or going on and I'll be down to do mostly anything <laughs> I don't know I, I was actually thinking recently about like what my limits would be in a profile yeah I was like heroin <laughs> I was like I don't I don't I don't think I would do that you know <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would not do that but I mean, I don't know. If someone like wanted to roll on Molly, I was like, okay, let's go. Because you know? <laughs> I think that would be funny. Like, I think that, that would be a really good story depending on who wanted to do that. All right. So I feel like <laughs> we've established your line and it's heroin. Yeah. Heroin. <laughs> I mean, maybe the, I'm just being like a cynical asshole, but like you've got to encounter people who are on the reverse end of 
Jennifer Coolidge. There have to be people who are like, we said 90 minutes. You've got 90 minutes. Ask me about the movie. These questions about my inner life are not in bounds. Does that still happen? Yeah. And what do you do in those situations? I mean, you do the best you can. In that way, you're taking their lead too, right? You're taking their lead in terms of what they're comfortable with, what they are putting out there. And if someone doesn't want to talk about something, then they don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to force them to do it. I I think that if there are questions that I sort of need to ask, right, like something that happened or something that is newsworthy or in that vein, I will still ask the question and I'm perfectly fine with no comment, right? And I can sort of move on from that. But yeah, like if they sort of want to stick to the oeuvre, we can do that. You know, there's there's plenty of fun stuff or like it can be a certain kind of interview or conversation that's, you know, like inside the actor's studio or something mm-hmm. that's sort of like focus on the craft or something, right? But then if you're like Tandy, who's just like willing to talk about your life and your experiences in this really vulnerable way, but that also intersects with craft and the industry, then great. You know, like I'm sort of willing to sort of see where people are willing to go and what they put out there and sort of take their cue in that sense. You feel comfortable sort of following their lead? A little bit, yeah. I mean, there is some pushing and prodding, right? I will do that in my way. Um, What's your way? I think jokes. (laughs) Yeah. I think think just like some sort of disarming of some sort. Or, Or sometimes I'll like maybe lightly tease them. I, I like to do it. It's not that serious, you know, <laughs> even though I know that like a hundred blogs might pick it up in the moment. I do believe that I genuinely do believe that where I'm like, we're just two people and we're talking like you should just tell me <laughs> like that's my attitude yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And like sometimes they usually tell you it kind of works. <laughs> it does work. <laughs> Come on. I'm just Alex. Exactly. You're just you're, you're hanging with Eugene yeah. here. We're just doing some Molly. It's fine. <laughs> I said no to the heroin, but everything else is great. <laughs> I have a question about the balance between the interviews and profiles you do versus the criticism stuff. And in the pages of New York Magazine or on Fulcher.com or whatever, like, how do you think of the balance between you're engaging with the work and then you're reporting on the people who create that work. I I do think, you know, because I I have written straight criticism and I also have done, I think, essays of cultural criticism. Like, I think the Drop Crutch Pants piece is a piece of criticism as much as it is an exploration of, you know, like gender identity and all of these things. But I think that for me, the ideal profile has an element of criticism in it that I'm able to sort of exercise or like maybe like hide into the piece Mm -hmm. through maybe either the construction or the ideas that we're talking about or what have you. you I mean, I think that's in that Michaela Cole profile a lot. It's it's a lot of interpretation of her work through the experiences that she was having off the screen. Right, right. Is it hard to move between those two modes? I think I'd like to get better at feeling like I can encompass all of it in a piece and that it doesn't have to be sort of... Uh, genre restrictive you know in this way like even even with films this idea that like a thing is a strict rom-com or horror or whatever I think the best films are often like a mixture of all of these different things and I think that that's true for pieces too is that like Hilton Alls's Andre Leon Talley piece from the 90s yeah amazing it's a profile but it is cultural criticism about fashion, about race, about being the only one in the room, about what navigating that space looks like and feels like. It is devastating. It is so good. (laughs) It is such a good piece. And so in my mind, 
that's the kind of peace that I aspire towards. A feeling of not only understanding a person, but understanding the context within which they exist and mm. work. And that to me is an act of criticism. Do you ever kill anything? Yeah. What gets killed? Usually it's a it's been shorter things, like things that there wasn't that much time investment in. I did an interview with Vigo Mortensen and it was right at the beginning of Green Book stuff. Um, and it was before all of the controversy around Green Book stuff and like him saying the N-word and all of these things. And so I talked to him and he was one of those people who I would ask a question and he would ignore it and talk about something else that he wanted to talk about. And I was like, oh man, this is rough. And it was a phone interview too. So it was, I was just like, this is not going anywhere. So I had that interview and then all of the controversy started happening. And I was like, we cannot run this without another conversation at the very least. So then I went back to the publicist. I was like, you know, can we get more time with him? Publicist said no. So, you know, we killed it because I was like, I'm not running this like outdated, weird conversation that doesn't address the elephant in the room, you know. But do you ever kill them because you just can't get something interesting? Uh, Not something that large scale, no. Yeah. Yeah. Does that bring some pressure with it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think that's where it was the party reporting. Right, right, right. Because like that's where you had to make 30 seconds work. And then I learned to make 15 minutes work. I can make three hours work. You know, I can make three days work. Do you think that the people who really open up, like who let you stay for three days, (laughs) who respond to the... I'm the parasite. Come on, let's just just talk a little bit. Do you think those people are thinking about the transactional nature of these experiences? They must. I think maybe in the moment things happen, right? We say some things. <laughs> we say some things we didn't mean. I, I think it, it generally comes up, I think, during the fact-checking process. Like, uh-huh. I think maybe people's anxieties start to rise then because then they're sort of confronted with the flood of quotes that the fact-checker now needs to sort of go through and confirm with them. And then I think they're like, oh, no, what is this, right? Like, what's going to happen? What have I done? Right, right. And do you hear from them then? Sometimes, yeah. But I try to keep it through the fact checker. I, uh-huh. try to, I try to keep that process within the professional channels. You're just point. like, I, I don't even remember what happened. You're going to have to talk to my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm like, it's on the tape, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the reason I'm asking is like you have these experiences with people, which both sides are clear. It's for a magazine. Right. But also over the course of three days or seven weeks of Zooming or whatever it is, at some point that falls to the back of your mind a little bit and you've gotten to know someone, they're really good at listening and asking questions. And I'm just interested in the moment where it sort of shifts back and how it shifts back for you too. You know, like on some level you've opened yourself up a little bit too, right? Sure. Yeah. The analogy that I end up constantly using is uh, one about therapy and in the sense that like you pay for therapy, it's one hour at a designated time in a designated place But like very honest, real conversations can happen in that space, right? Just because it's sort of mediated through money and all of these other things and mechanisms doesn't mean that it's not real or good or what have you. And so I guess that's the ideal situation. And I think that at least with celebrities, they're not naive subjects, right? They've most of these people have done a million interviews and a million profiles. So this is not new. So I guess for me, it's like, we both sort of understand that and we're mm-hmm. coming to the space 
and we're going to have this conversation and then we'll leave it. So that's kind of my attitude around it. Is there anything therapeutic about it for you? <sighs> yeah, it depends on the person. I think the Michaela one was therapeutic for me too because it felt like, I don't know, it, it, it like her idea of herself as an artist and a writer sort of helped me clarify what I wanted to do and how I thought about myself as an artist and a writer. How so? I think this this idea, and I think the same thing happened with Sandra O oh too, of, and she said it on the Emmy stage actually, of going to a place where you can do the work that is only yours. I think there's a space inside of you that, and I know it sounds super woo-woo or whatever, but I, I do feel like, you know, you can get to a place that is that is yours, that you can write from or work from. And I think it's really important to preserve that part of yourself in order to not be buffeted by all of these other constraints and desires and jealousies and whims and all of these things, right? That all of these industries, whether it's media or entertainment or theater or whatever, will sort of inevitably put on you. How do you feel like you're doing with that? <sighs> I don't know. I think I'm getting better. And and it's also a structural institutional thing, right? Like I feel very lucky to be at New York Magazine where I feel like I do have the space to kind of just do what I think is interesting. Like the last piece that I did was a cover of Anthony Vyasnesso, who's this writer who died unexpectedly. And that was, that was a piece where I, I sort of like had this idea of structure and a different kind of structure that I really wanted to try out. At that point, I'd never really tinkered with form in a profile yet, but I sort of felt confident enough to try it. And New York Mag was game, you know, I had to write a memo, but um, <laughs> they were game after that. <laughs> um, and so that's really gratifying, right? To be able to feel like you're in a space where you can try those things. And if it doesn't go well, it doesn't go well, but at least you can try it. And I think that's really important. That was a murky piece. Yeah. Which did feel different to me than a lot of the stuff that you've written where I think you have like, there are things you are curious about and underlying ideas that you want to play with, but the like essential truth of it is not in question, you know? Right. That must have felt pretty different. Yeah. After the initial reporting uh, in the Bay Area, I sort of understood that, oh, this can't be what I normally do. Like, it's just not possible. I can't write a straightforward profile of this person who has died, in part because the people who remember him don't have the same idea of him. And I think that after talking to his partner and then his family in particular, they had these sort of really diametrically opposed views of him. And how do you reconcile that, right? Like, normally in a profile, the you talk to the subject, and that subject is the through line in the piece, naturally, right? I think there are ways to probably complicate that too, but, you know, that's traditionally what happens. But I didn't have that in this case. So I needed to think of a different way to allow all of those kind of fragments to exist at once mm. in a way that still felt honest to those each of those pieces. It's interesting that your response to that question around protecting your own space, doing the work that you want to do, led you to an answer about sort of like craft of writing. You're like, ah, oh, the interviews, I can handle those. But like the writing part is the place where I really like beat myself up. 
do you think there's a degree to which like the stories that you're picking the people you're choosing to spend time with and focus on and put on this stage can also be a version of that inevitably i think you know if we're psychoanalyzing the subjects that i choose i think that's what we're doing yeah, yeah no, no no totally uh, i'm game <laughs> Come they're, on, just tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, they're doing a version of the thing that I admire, of like finding a place to be sort of free. That's what I want. I don't know. I think that's what everybody wants, right? Every, everybody wants to feel free in their bodies, in their minds, in their creative power. And all of those people, Michaela Cole, Bung Joon-ho, Sandra Oh, Jeremy O'Harris, all of these people have do a thing that I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's fascinating and I want to understand how you did that and how you got to that place that's probably what I gravitate towards you know where I was like oh I want to understand how you access that and made that thing that feels so alive are there some like universal truths around that that you've learned I do think that cliche of like being true to yourself like I think that is true right and I think that's sort of that is what I mean about the the people who are able to, especially in that industry, right? Like Hollywood is really brutal. Well, that's right? the thing. It's like, it's so interesting to hear you say that. I'm interested in finding your own truth in this industry built on literal bullshit. Right. And artifice. Right. And fakery. Right. That's a hard place to find it. Totally. And how do you protect that? How do you survive and like not feel like you're selling pieces of yourself or your soul? And maybe you did. Maybe you had to do that in exchange for more time or more space or more power or all of these things. And I'm interested in that, right? Um, I don't know the answer to those things, but I think that with a lot of the people that I'm interested in, they have preserved something. They have preserved something essential about themselves that they are then able to put into a work that I think is interesting or transformative or something. And do you feel that way about yourself and the work you're doing? (laughs) Any day now. I know. That's a a legitimate question. I I feel like writing. (laughs) I'm just trying not to be embarrassed. You know, like I'm I'm trying not to embarrass myself in public. I'm trying not to embarrass myself with an editor. You know, like I have my own ambitions of writing a book. And and I think I have this idea of what I want that to be and how I'll go about it. But, you know, maybe I am looking for a blueprint in all of these other people in terms of how to do that. But when I am writing these things, I, I understand that it's for a magazine and I understand that it's mediated by publicists and managers and editors and all of these things. But I do feel like there's honesty. Like I, I feel for myself that there's honesty in the pieces. That's something. I don't know if that's everything, right? Yeah. It's something. It's a lot. It's something. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Our intern was Noel Matir. Welcome, Noel. Thanks so much to them. Thanks to our friends at Vox and our friends at MailChimp. And thanks so much to Alex for coming in. We'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.